Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today, I am joined by Mr. Dean Amasinger, who joins us today from uh, lockdown in Shanghai. So, yeah. Dean, what's what's happening there with the lockdown? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm back in back in Shanghai, and it's been, it's weird. It's like I feel like I'm uh, uh, yeah back in 2020 right now. Uh, <laughs> it's you know ch- pretty much from after you know in 2020, like April time, March, April time, 2020. China has been pretty much at zero COVID. They had a strong lockdown, you know, from March for about a month and, and the cases were really low and, they, and then it just went down to zero and then life went completely back to normal. And um, we got back here of like September of 2020. And then, like I said, life's completely back to normal. Everything's open. No, mm-hmm. And then from that time, it's been, you know, the border has been completely shut. So every time you come into the country, you need, uh, similar to Australia, two week quarantine. But this time when I came back, I went to see my family over Christmas and I came back and uh, had to do a three-week quarantine in a hotel, which was, you know, challenging. Um, and then, but then Omicron somehow has made its way here, and it, and the cases have gone up. But we're still talking, you know, low, low thousands, uh, like still, re- you know, relative to the rest of the world, like really low cases. But um, uh, China are insisting on this um, zero sort of case policy. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're basically trying to test the whole of Shanghai, which is like 30 million people. Um, and so they're doing it district by district. So when they when they test your district, um, you, you're, you're, you're in lockdown while they're testing you. So um, we've got colleagues that are locked down for two weeks and they're in their apartment. Um, but I, I chose the compound where the Performance Institute is, um, is locked down. And I thought I'd rather be here than locked in an apartment. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm staying here. But, Got a hot tub, got got the you know recovery suites. We've got the gym to train in, so I'm not I'm actually not complaining considering all things considered. Yeah, I, like I was saying to you beforehand, I'd rather be in there. At least you can train and move around as opposed to being yeah. stuck in a one bedroom apartment. I would absolutely. Yeah. And after yeah. doing three weeks in quarantine yeah. in a hotel, you'd be just only, over I, it. I've only been out of quarantine for two weeks, so to go to go back in for two weeks, you know, in an apartment, I just I, mentally I just couldn't I couldn't do it. So um tim our head of physio is here with me and he's he's an he's an aussie and he's into because the first game of the um aussie rules was yesterday mm. uh, melbourne versus the camp whoever and we had it on the, we got like a 20 foot screen oh. um, <laughs> seriously it's like a 20 foot screen on the, and we, we he, he watched the game on that and he, he was loving life <laughs> <laughs> oh man you have so much fun it's like a it's like a teenage boy's dream you're gonna be like yeah, star, like whole, star wars and playing ping pong yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> so um dean um for people who don't really know you um your role currently is like a was a technical director at the ufc 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 performance institute in shanghai right. um which is obviously a new facility um yeah. that the ufc built a few years ago similar to the one that they built in las vegas which was their sort of inaugural facility um mm. w- what's your role there at the ufc now what do, what's your kind of uh remit yeah so i um I oversee all the technical uh, training, so MMA for the academy. So I oversee um, the programming and planning for all technical training, and I coach as well. So, like in terms of what would be considered like head coach kind of roles and responsibilities, um, and then I oversee all the performance services as well, like um, the, the supplementary services that we have, like strength and conditioning, nutrition, um, sports science. Uh, but we have heads in department for, of all of those um, departments, and you know, ultimately they're they're you know we've got like you know reed as well who's uh, you know top of his field in terms of nutrition but it's it's kind of yeah making sure everyone's working together as a interdisciplinary team and ultimately um you know it's head up by um duncan french 
on the performance side uh, in Las Vegas, uh, and then uh, Forrest Griffin on the MMA side in in Las Vegas again. But in in here in Shanghai, kind of yeah, oversee oversee both areas. Yeah, nice. Is that um, is that kind of like a dream job for you, Dean, or is it a pen the ass like by times? Or what do you think of it? What's your it's, what's your overall? It's a dream dream job, mate. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, like you know, I, I started in the sport. I've been involved in martial arts since I was four years old. But I started kind of training MMA, um, you know, two thousand two something like that, 2003 and uh, like proper proper actual MMA and you know I was in Nottingham I went to Nottingham University and uh, I was training with like Michael Bisping and and um, at that time he was training in Nottingham Paul Daly and, and and Dan Hardy and we were training in a sports hall um, with a wooden floor and we had two judo mats so two two by one judo mats yeah. right so so we would have only have one group one pair on those two mats that would grapple and then the rest would be doing striking and then we'd like move around because we only had those mats to, to train on and then you know forward 15 or well no 20 years now jesus um yeah like pretty much 20 years and i'm I mean, in like possibly the best training facility in the world um with unbelievable resources and you know professional full-time professional athletes and it's just it's crazy the way the sport has developed in that time so um it's yeah it, it, it is my dream job and I I couldn't be I couldn't be happier with it really I absolutely love it yeah it's interesting so for those people who don't follow MMA or UFC the, the names that Dean has just listed off there are some like legends in the sport like Paul Daly, what they call him, Semtex, he's just knocking fuckers yeah. out like, you know, he fought <laughs> Nate Diaz in the, in the UFC. I think he's over at Strike Force because he got kicked no, out of UFC Nick, for... Nick, he fought Nick Diaz in Strike Force. Nick, Nick Diaz. Um, did he fight... Who did he fight in the UFC? Oh, Josh Koscheck he fought in the UFC. Yeah, and then well, he hit that's him. What, he, that's what got him kicked out, yeah, because he hit yeah, Josh Koscheck I, after the fight. That was an, I was cornering him for that fight. And... Um, <laughs> and <laughs> It was a tough fight. We knew it was going to be a tough fight. It was number one contender fight to fight for GSP next. And Kostjak went on to do the ultimate fighter with GSP um, uh, after, you know, uh, yeah, after that fight. And so there was, it was, a, you know, high, high, I think, I think it was main event in Montreal. And uh, yeah, he hit him off the bell and, and <laughs> I, I was on the, I jumped up on the side and cause it was a bit of, you know, uh, kerfuffle and what and he walked to the corner and I'm just looking at him like, what, what are you doing? And he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was him done wasn't it in UFC it was yeah. it was yeah he got cut, cut from the UFC and banned, banned for life unfortunately so um yeah it was fu- that, fu- yeah fu- that, that, that wasn't long after I think they acquired Strikeforce then Josh Koscheck went on to fight GSP and subsequently got the eyeballs jabbed out of him got a yeah, broken orbital so he just got that, jabbed to that, death that, by that, GSP yeah yeah and then he obviously there's some of the names there at the team met Dan Hardy fought GSP for a title shot and Dan's doing some great work on, on his podcast and, and platforms yeah. now as well great analyst I was disappointed to see him get cuffed in the UFC he was actually my favourite commentator so I was disappointed to see Dan get yeah get let go yeah he was so good that, that was unfortunate and, you know, tough, tough for me as well, because Dan and I own um, a business together, which, which you probably see other podcasts and stuff is related to the business that we own together. And, um, you know, I'm in a uh, challenging position because I work for the UFC and, and then he was cut, you know, mm. cut for the UFC for, for, you know, a couple of things that happened and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, it's just tough. And, and, and for him as well, in terms of, post fighting that that commentary analysis stuff and he's still doing some of that with, with on through our youtube channel full reptile um but also um you know the the, the commentary and and, uh, 
and analyst work that he was doing actually for the UFC. Uh, that's a dream job scenario for mm-hmm. him as well. He loved it. You know, he, he, he's always been involved in the sport. He's a champion of the sport, uh, cares about the athletes. And, um, you know, yeah, it's hard. For, it's, it's tough for him that he's now kind of like excluded from that um, because UFC has, has, oh, did I? No, no you can still hear You're still there. You're still there. Um, yeah, for him to be excluded from the UFC when he's been, you know, a company man the whole time, been in the UFC from like, he was there from like 2006, I think, if I remember rightly, maybe 2008, um, fought for a title, first, first British person, first European, I think, to fight for a title, if I'm, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's tough, but it's just the way it he, goes. He, he might be the second. I think Arlowski was the first. He might be the first Brit. For, definitely the first Brit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, but is it, isn't isn't uh, Olovsky Russian? Yeah, but you said isn't that part of Europe? Technically, half of it. <laughs> semantics. semantics. <laughs> Welcome to the geopolitical podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's leave that. Let's move on. All right, let's, let's move on. We're not going to get to that one. <laughs> and then uh, the other person you mentioned there as well, which is uh, Michael Bisping, who obviously yeah. did uh, fight for a title on ten days notice, yeah. beat Luke Rockhold, and now was doing commentary too. And he, I like Mike as well. He's a funny character on 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 that and. Um, and uh, obviously on podcasts as well, he's uh, he's still that classic fucking lunatic uh, British guy. He was in season three at Ultimate Fire. He makes me, he makes me laugh. He's pretty funny. Uh, I think he, he's actually he, married to, to an Australian girl, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is. She's, yeah. she's Australian. Rebecca, she's a lovely woman. Um, but uh, yeah, he's met, Mike's mellowed a lot. Like <laughs> compare him to what he was like in in two thousand and three to who he is now. You know, he. Um, I, I went. I was in. Um, uh america in in like october time with my family um well we actually we had some of the chinese athletes fighting on dana white contender series i was over there for that uh, but then i took a little trip with my wife and daughter to disneyland and stayed at his house because he lives like literally in this um this, about 10 minutes from disney world yeah, yeah. and um and you know in the evening we sat, sat outside in in his uh garden and stuff and he's just got this you know mansion with a pool and and he's got three beautiful children. They're lovely kids, like really, really nice kids, you know, doing well. One of his kids got a scholarship, wrestling scholarship to uh, university and, he, and his daughter's doing well and his younger kid, you know, doing well in school and stuff. And they've got a lovely wife and we're having a nice evening. And it's like, it's crazy that MMA has, has you know, made all that, considering that, you know, we're joking about that time, we, you know, training back in England and what things were like. And then, you know, being able to do something that you love and having a lifestyle like that and then now mm. what he's doing with ufc with commentating he's doing amazing i think he's one of the best commentators out there generally not just because he's my mate i genuinely I, I do i do believe that you know he's doing pay-per-views and stuff and um yeah i'm just so happy for him you know i'm really proud of him he's got this movie just just came that came out i can't wait to watch that as well apparently it's really good um and he's like he's completed life like you know doing something you love made money has a beautiful family he's like he's, yeah he's, he's he's doing good i'm really happy for him yeah, I, I listened to recently on Rogan. I had to I burst out laughing because you know we often watch Bisping over the years fight, and sometimes after a fight he'd say stupid things or, and you go oh he's just sometimes he's just a fucking idiot like he's like he's just but he's caught up in the moment and then I just kind of laugh and you go oh that's a bit too much like you know especially in America, but then on Rogan he was saying man I look back on some of my fights and the way I carried on after my fights I was a fucking <laughs> idiot he even said himself and I was like it's pretty funny like how he was yeah. able to just laugh at himself it's such a good um such a good measure of a person when they can just take the piss out of himself. I, I really enjoy when someone can do that, you know, so yeah, good. He's, he's a top bloke. Um, Dean, anyway, we need to switch back to you because I want to ask Sorry, you, um, yeah. how, yeah, uh, we, went, we went down there a memory lane of uh, UFC yeah, yeah. fighters. Um, how, how did you get into MMA originally? Did you have a background in rugby, was it? 
originally did you play rugby and then get that was that your segue into grappling and MMA? am i correct in saying that yeah kind of so i started martial arts when i was like four years old so my uncle um had a kickboxing academy in near where i lived um so i stopped my brother was already um doing it. he's four years older than me and i was you know i was going to training but um wasn't able to do it so I, I just wanted to start as soon as I possibly could because I was, felt like I was missing out um, and so I started like four did that till I was kind of 12 I'd say um, and then I was also playing rugby from a young age as well so when I got to about 12 it started to get re- not, not serious but you know like county and, and and stuff like that and I was doing pretty well and I, and I already at that time had aspirations of uh, playing professional rugby and so from that point the level of training that I was doing it, I couldn't do everything so I I, I, I lent towards um, rugby and then but funnily enough like as you mentioned my coach in rugby said that wrestling would be good for um, as like some cross training um, for, for for rugby and tackling technique and whatnot mm. so I got into it then loved grappling I actually had a greater affinity for grappling than I did striking and um and 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 I and then I started doing a little bit of jiu-jitsu as well um, and I'd already what you know I watched the first my uncle who I, I mentioned uh, I did kickboxing with like he used to show me like Valetudo videos of like pure bare knuckle from Brazil like pre-UFC one sort of thing and and he was he you know showed me those first UFCs and I was just captivated by it and I was you know a fan of the of the UFC from you know number one basically when he's on VHS all the, all, all the way through so um and then and then when I, I went to uh you know played you know academy level rugby went to university um and then at, I went to Not- Nottingham University and I was uh still playing rugby there but then that was that and then I, I was just training at a gym and then I met Paul Daly and he was hitting the bag and I and um I could see he was like doing kickboxing and I just up, just went up and spoke to him and said um, oh, what you know? Where do you train, sort of thing? And he said, "Oh, I train at this place. Come down Tuesday." And I went down, and then that was it. Just got in, got it, got into MMA, um, and because they were already doing it, and then I was a decent grappler, and all all those guys were um, more on the striking side of things, so I was a good training partner for them. Um, and then I went to Brazil and did like a four months four month stint in in Brazil, and uh, like won the worlds uh, over there, but only as a white belt. But it was it was my sort of introduction into comp- competitiveness and thought you know I really thought oh maybe I can do something with that and then came back at my first amateur fight and then went and and went from there after I graduated went um yeah full-time training and and that was by then Team Roughhouse had joined so we had like Ross Pearson, Andre Winner, Dan Hardy and um Nick Nick and uh Nick Shipshack joined after the Ultimate Fighter but we still had probably one of the best teams in the UK at at that time a number of UFC fighters and high-level guys, both like welterweight and, and lightweight, um, and I was just yeah, right place, right time, and and that, that and that was it really in terms of going into MMA. And then jumping forward from that, then uh, Dean, you ended up in the Ultimate Fighter House, which is a reality TV show where yeah. you basically have two teams um, that would be brought in. You know, what uh, coach versus coach, like you mentioned, like Koscheck and GSP, but. If I'm not mistaken, you guys were the first time they had two teams to represent two countries, which was USA yeah. versus UK. It was the, yeah, the first you were on Team UK, led by Michael Bisping. This is when he was going to fight Dan Henderson at the end. Correct, yeah, on UFC yeah. 100. Yeah, so t- t- tell us a little bit about what it's like, because we, we watch these shows, and I was first introduced to um, UFC via in around about 2007 so kind of actually i'll just give you this quick little story because a bit like yourself i played rugby growing up and i did a little bit of karate but dropped all those things to concentrate on rugby and was in sort of provincial level academies and and so on and played for the school and club and was uh, um, rugby mad and wanted to become a professional rugby player as well 
but didn't sort of grow from the edge of 13 onwards. I was sort of a giant at 13. And then it was like, oh, he's losing weight now. So I was thir- 13 years of age, five foot 10 and 85 kilos. And now I'm 40, 43 years of age, five foot 10 and 78 kilos. So I gives you an idea. I'm actually going the opposite. I like Benjamin Button. Um, and so, and so um, um, I lost my train of thought there. So um what was my question? But, uh, you were asking ultimate <laughs> fighter, fighter house. Yeah. Yes. So my, my intro then I went back sort of doing, uh, I, I was in the military then for a while. And then I was doing lots of, uh, running and stuff. And then I started doing Japanese jujitsu in the city just next door to where I was working. Cause I wanted to get back and do something in about 2007, I think it was. And in one day in a video store called uh, JB hi-fi, it does all like DVDs and stuff. This is in 2007. I picked up this ultimate fighter thing. And I was like, Oh, what's that? And I get it. It was like $20 and I brought it home. And my wife said, you're not watching that here. I'm not watching that violent, stupid sport in this house. So I put it on anyway. Next minute, she was in the background and she started watching it. And then she was like, oh, this is, this is actually quite different because you're getting bought in with the story of the people. Yeah. We're not big reality TV show fans. So we watched two episodes and I, I went out for a run. And then when I came back, she had watched two more episodes. She goes, <laughs> you got you to gotta watch these again. These guys are fucking crazy. She went and it was DJ Penn versus... Um, uh jen's pulver that season and we yeah, just yeah. absolutely you know fell in love with the sport then and started watching it <laughs> and so you're watching you see all the craziness goes on in the house like especially in the earlier episodes where people were like you know kicking the shit out when they're getting drunk putting their head yeah. through walls um so if anybody wants a good intro into the ufc watch seasons definitely one to probably about one to ten are definitely yeah. crazy seasons um, yeah. and then it kind of starts mellowing as it goes on but is it really like that in the house thing is it or, or do the producers whip you up or is no, that really yeah. what happens? Absolutely. There's nothing fake about it. Um, but what what they do do, what they do is is create an environment that that makes that happen. So nothing's nothing's fake, nothing's scripted or anything like that. But you're not allowed music, you're not allowed books, and you're not allowed games. So you're you're in you go to training, you come back from the training and you're at the house, and obviously they either they do their second session or you'll be first, whichever way around it is. But in that middle period between first training and second training in the afternoon you're just hanging around it's not a great not a great deal to do actually there was basketball court at the back actually that was that and that was it um but you know over a time of uh, you know i think we filmed over eight weeks um there's not a great deal to do so although it's a big house there's also not a lot of time area for you to be completely on your own you're like yeah. you're in bunk in rooms where there's like four people per room um and and so it, it creates a pressure cooker. Plus there's free flowing alcohol, particularly after if someone gets knocked out of, of the tournament, they've now lost their motivation to be disciplined and not drinking. And it just like progressively gets worse as you go along when more and more people are out of the tournament. Um, and yeah, you're just like the devil makes work for idle thumbs. And it's just, and, and, and your, and these are your competition. It, there's, there's cultural difference. We, we, I don't know whether you, you noticed it or, or remembered it, but we were all British guys and, and the, British MMA is relatively small. So I knew everyone on that on, yeah, the, yeah. on the show before we went there. Like I'd fought Dave Faulkner um, and then I knew the other, the, Ross and uh, Andre were in my team. So we were teammates. I knew of Nick, I've seen, we had fought on two um, events, the same events, uh, FX3 uh, uh, together. I knew, I knew of Jeff Lawson as well. And then Stapes, the only person I hadn't met, but I knew who he was. So it was, and James Wilkes I trained with as well, actually. So, so we all had a c- kind of, 
familiarity and friendship. Whereas the, on the American side, this is all over America. They, 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 they've never even heard of each other sort of thing. And, and there was no bond. Whereas we were yeah. in another country, in enemy territory, and it was like, bond, it was bonding for us. So we like we were pretty cool actually, but then they were definitely the, you know, yeah, the enemy and we were a real team. And I think the other Ultimate Fighters, which was slightly different, where the, the teams are important, but ultimately you could be, and, and we could have been fighting people on our own team as well, to be fair. And it did happen in the finals, but, um, you know, we, we, we felt more, um, yeah, team versus team. So that created some conflict and, and, and challenges and whatnot. But uh, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing scripted or, or fake about it. And it's a, and it's an intense um, experience. It's really, it's, yeah. <laughs> I look back on fond memories because it, 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 you know, opened a lot of doors for me and, and it, it was actually fun. And like, I coached um, on um, the UK versus Australia. So Ross versus George, with Ross Pearson and George Solaropoulos. So I was on the coaching side of that um, and you know, run, run that program. And that was a much better experience because then <laughs> I, was, I was just like, same sort of thing in training, coaching in the two sessions a day, having fun with it and all that, that comes with it. But then at the end of the day, I'm going home yeah, and yeah. You know, not in that environment. So that was that was the best experience I had of the Ultimate Fire. But and that was filmed in Sydney as well. That was really cool. Um, but yeah, the, the actual experience of living in that house is, is 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 tough. And you see some people really struggle with it and have, you know, what you know, breakdowns effectively on on TV. Yeah, like some guys just can't take and have to leave, you know, or to get a phone yeah. call and their head goes wild and that's it, yeah. you know, they're out, you know. So, Dean, yeah, what was yeah, so that's the other that's the other thing as well. No contact with the outside world. Yeah, yeah. So, like, some people so, get a call, like, from their girlfriend who's having a meltdown, her wife, and then that's it. it just some well, guys just go crazy. Yeah, this, it's got to be serious. It's got to be, like, close to life-threatening for you just to contact Yeah. For, some, for them to contact you. It can't just be like, oh, we want to chat. So, you're not... If you if, if guys in there with kids or guys in there with wives, they're not... You're not talking to them for eight weeks. Um, so, that's yeah, it's, tough. It's probably worth me clarifying that, like, you know, when you get a call, it's like Dana White, the president of UFC, comes yeah, in yeah, and goes... Yeah you Dean you need to come out here because your wife's yeah. on the phone and then it's yeah. and she might be saying you know this is this is crazy like something's happening but then it could be just like there was one guy his wife was just freaking out over nothing really and then yeah it was just there's all sort of craziness that goes on there people's heads go wild so so Dean what was it like actually trying to sleep in there and, and recover because to me that looks like a madhouse and it reminded me a lot of the military when we were away in the army where you just can't sleep and there's a bunch of lunatics but is yeah, it the same I mean, sort of thing like I said, um, early on, everyone was like super focused and, um, you know, eyes on the prize, wanting to win the tournament. And then as people started to drop up, drop up out of the tournament, then the drinking increased, the late nights increased. And um, we were a bit better than the other side. But then, you know, the, the Americans were definitely um, having a few later nights and drinking and whatnot. And it's like, yeah, it was it was what it, it was what it was. And I think at that time, this is 2009, right? Um, certainly my understanding of of recovery and and MMA's general even understanding of sports performance was in its infancy mm -hmm. um, so it didn't really even register on my on my radar about that uh, the importance of it or the importance of, of, of recovery in general to be honest um, yeah so it, it didn't didn't really occur to us but looking back on it yeah it wasn't it wasn't a great environment for sure <laughs> Yeah, I suppose maybe because you're so young, you all kind of got away with it, you know. You, you, yeah. I think when you're younger, you can you can get away with it, but when you, when you start getting a bit older, it gets a bit harder. I think I was like 23, I think, 23, 24. So, yeah, get away with anything. No, no need for stretching, no need for recovery. <laughs> <laughs>
it's like yeah you see some guys going walking around just punching their hands i just want to bang i just want to bang yeah, so yeah, that for like yeah. three weeks and then they get knocked out it's like okay <laughs> maybe you should just relax <laughs> uh dean you you had a, a fair few fights you had like um looking at your sure dog record um where all the tough guys are you had about 16 fights in total in mma and a couple of exhibition fights as well yeah. um what was it like being an mma athlete like as a as someone trying to make it because i presume you were you not know, trying to make a living out of it you were going to be full-time and you know it's kind of what, what's it like to be in that position where you, you're going into getting ready for these fights you're going to get punched in the face potentially knocked out get an arm broken <laughs> what's it like like living day to day yeah that environment? That, that that's the um that's the least of your worries um to be honest that, that doesn't come to you. if you if that's on your radar about worried about getting you know knocked out then you probably shouldn't you shouldn't be a, a fighter um it at the at the time i was definitely again talking looking back to the ultimate fighter um the you know notoriety or or, or whatever that comes from that is helpful in terms of sponsors and whatnot so that was really helpful to me to be able to train full-time and do that um but it unless you're even there's, there's some guys in the ufc in the early state early stage of their ufc career they still have to have um particularly now that the sponsorship landscape is completely different mm. i think it was, it was way better then even outside of the ufc is way better um and so it's, it, it was it was um so now even guys in the early you know early um parts of their state in the UFC um they they still have other jobs and whatnot so that makes it it make, makes it really challenging and I think that um uh, from from that from that perspective in terms of if you're thinking sports performance wise um it, it, it's it, it's challenging and I think like some of the other things as well is when I was fighting particularly uh is that none of my coaches were MMA coaches so I came up from a time where none of my coaches have ever fought MMA and that would be the same for Dan or all of that my generation because the sport is that yet that young that none of our coaches had had fought yeah like I said fought MMA so I had a I had a jiu-jitsu coach I had a wrestling coach I had a striking coach and the wrestling coach you know showing you stuff that yes it's good for wrestling but he they, they weren't really thinking about is this applying to MMA and 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 is this is, is this you know going to be useful or whatever and the same for jiu-jitsu there's you know there's jiu-jitsu for MMA so that you, you can't just do BJJ the same as what you would do in a, in a sports jiu-jitsu match as you would for MMA there's other considerations that you need to think about so early on I was I realized that and I, I end up ended up being the sort of de facto coach at um um rough house before I was I was cornering all of those guys and I was you know even though I wasn't a developed coach really I was still fighting and I had aspirations of coaching uh, sorry aspirations of you know making it as a fighter and looking back in hindsight I know that that um it, it it negatively impacted my career the fact that I was focusing on the coaching there was there was a time on I'll give you an example there was a time on a Bama event which is a big European show that I fought on a card and cornered two people on the same fight card right so that that should tell you something about where where my where headspace yeah where my headspace was at that yeah. i would even consider that it, it's just look when i look back at that decision making i'm just like what an idiot but but i also know that looking back as, as i've matured that um i i have more an more of an aptitude for coaching uh, and I enjoyed coaching and that's why I was you know subconsciously that's why I'm making those decisions because I really enjoy coaching I always have and I've had a and, I, and I've had a I've been always been drawn drawn to it I've, I've ended up because we didn't some of those MMA sessions that we had 
um, at Rafael's. There was no coach running it. It was just like we had. We, it was like iron sharp and iron. We had all these good guys on the man. Mm. That's we just got in there and we and we sparred hard, and that was getting us better. But some of the technical sessions weren't really weren't really happening, particularly com- compared to. Um, you know what I know, how I know to structure training now. Uh, so that was that that whole process of realizing that, that wasn't as good as it could be has developed the the the, the co- coaching philosophy that I have now and the need for the integration of you know different technical streams and so on. And um, yeah, and I, I sort of had a realization to myself that I um, what really want to be a coach and I enjoy fighting, but my calling is coaching. And, and once I, re- once I was honest with myself about that, I made that decision and retired and relatively retired young, you know, I, I retired at, at 30. So, yeah, you know, this, this, this is where Sam Harris would say, you have no free will. You see, you just proved the point, you know, <laughs> 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 but I, no, I think, I think that, I think that's interesting that, that, you know, kind of how we, sometimes we often fight against what we're good at in our lives and we end up in a, in a worse off position. Like, you know, like you said, maybe keep fighting or we stay in a job or this is so true for many things. And I, I was in the same boat as well. Um, and I think everybody's been in that same boat. We keep kind of grinding away, trying to be good at something, but you know, in your heart that you should maybe take the, the right, the right level, uh, the right road instead of the left road yeah. and, and do something different. And you just kind of go with what you're, what you're good at and what you naturally kind of gravitate towards. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing. Did you, exactly. what, did you study um, any sort of human physiology sports coaching at university that led you down that path or what, what was no, your undergrad? I, I studied you know, nutritional biochemistry. And so I helped, th- that helped me with me. I would help the guys with the weight cut and stuff. Yeah. I used to do, I used to work a lot, a lot with guys just doing their weight cut, to be honest. Um, and so that was, that was part of it. And then I did a strength and conditioning internship. So I have a strength and conditioning background and I've worked in strength and conditioning and rugby. Um, I've worked with, I would like the Queensland Reds um i worked in japan in kabota spears i worked the england rugby team uh, and i worked in a few other sports as well so i've had that going along that because that also when you're fighting as an um, mma fighter i was doing some of that coaching in snc and whatnot and um money wise there's a lot better than what i was earning from the fighting so it's all supplementary yeah, to, yeah. Uh, supplementary to my fighting and even when I was coaching like co- even when I was coaching UFC fighters um, it's that, that you know it's still not as, as a coach when you're, getting, you're getting a percentage of their earnings and whatnot but I had to do other other work in other sports MMA is my passion but th- th- it wasn't paying me enough that I was able to just only coach MMA so I was I worked in um, other sports and essence and SNC was my sort of I'd say next next passion down and rugby also is and that's why how can I have a I, I worked as a contact skills coach as well so like tackling technique and 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 all of that because of my wrestling back so it kind of went full circle I went to mm. wrestling to uh to get my rugby better and then ended up becoming a d- decent wrestler and then applied my rugby knowledge to be a contact skills coach so um and that's the main thing I was doing with like England rugby for example uh and but it, it accidentally formed my understanding of sports performance and, and 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 made it made me ideal for the role that I have today because um I have a different perspective to some technical coaches that only come from the martial arts background because of the experience in working in professional environments and the integration of um the different support services and the understanding of periodization and so on and so forth um, and that's kind of um, informed my approach and coaching philosophy and of how to prepare for MMA in terms of integrating the non-technical and technical training. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because sometimes we get focused on being specialists in an area. We don't look more broadly or laterally at different disciplines and there's so much we can learn from other disciplines to bring them in. Um, 
into into our own respective areas that we're working at the time and so much so many things we can look and other things and always it, it always reminds me when people talk about this of the Miyamoto Musashi quote out of Book of Five Rings is once you see the way in one thing, you see it in all. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know, and it's such a great. such a good thing, you know. Uh, yeah, where I love that yeah, so you start seeing it in, in different things. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm the same as well. I I love I've been doing a lot of boxing recently, and it's really interesting with footwork and angles. You kind of go, ah, this is like in jujitsu on balancing, or when I did Japanese yeah, yeah. jujitsu or any judo I've done or uh, in karate about distance in and out but karate wouldn't have that kind of more to getting your head off the center line but it's very in and out so that kind of defense is good but the lateral head movement is not very good so you just start seeing the gaps and you see the affinities yeah. and how you see things are all the same and you get more kind of um nearly obsessed with the acquisition of the knowledge and and the, and the similarities as opposed to the outcome or the end of the of the of the road so it's interesting that you talk about that the overlap between them because I think it's a it's a it's a good way to be and and quite open as well to look for new ways of approaching a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So um in in your time then Dean of fighting and in 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 coaching as well and particularly on the way cutting side and then the SNC as you've outlined there as well. What have you seen over the years that MMA athletes do very well compared to other athletes where other athletes may be lacking from other sports? What what do you think is kind of unique about MMA athletes in this area? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think that uh, for the most part, when you compare um, MMA to other sports in terms of sports performance and preparation, um, I actually think there's still, it, it's starting to make headway now because it's only been a, a professional, what you would really consider a professional sport for a relatively short amount of time. So they're still like catching up on a, on a lot of things um, in terms of just general understanding across the sport and the, the coaches that are involved in, involved in it. And um, I think the uh, thing that MMA does the best is the amount, if you think about how much there is to learn in MMA compared to other sports um, and the level of proficient, technical proficiency that you need uh, across well, I separate them into like 11 technical skill categories, but for, sim for simplicity across grappling, wrestling and, and striking and then the integration of those three, there is so much to, to learn in, in, mm. in that and, and a need um, at the level that particularly in the UFC where people are so rounded. And so the, the coaching and planning that goes into that training and that, you know, if you compare it to a boxer, what they have to do across a week and what they have to work on compared to what an MMA fight has to do is, is, is not even comparable or football or, or rugby. There's the different, there's different areas of the game that like aspects of it, like rucking is a skill, um, mauling is a skill and then open play. Do you know what I mean? There are different areas. Yeah, like yeah. A, you make a compar comparison with rugby particularly, but soccer or something there's there are it's, it's yeah so that i'd say that's what's so challenging about mma and what i love about mma so uh, so much but i think that's what mma does does um does the best is able to gen genuinely be specialists in lots of different lots of different areas so um yeah i'd probably say that and on, on that topic then dean you've again had that great privilege of, of you know fighting and working across all these different areas and now in the ufc as part of the PI, you get to see lots of different camps probably and get to talk to people who've got problems. Who who would you say is some of the, the best MMA coaches out there that you admire in terms of, you know, their, their approach to getting athletes ready? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot. Um, and what's so, what's so interesting about MMA, which is, which is um, part of what I was talking about previously about the number of things 
um, that you have to learn and the approach to preparation um, is that, again, taking rugby, for example, um, there are not huge differences between the preparation of like elite level rugby teams. There are smaller things. I know in New Zealand, they do some, they, there's a couple of people that are doing some stuff with, um, they, you know, they, they use um, dr drills and whatnot to make sure they're getting the high speed meters in. They're not necessarily doing um, non-technical uh, conditioning. It's all from the sport effect. You know, there's a little, couple of different approaches yeah. there, yeah. I guess. But outside of that, the, the, it's pretty established best practice in rugby about how within, within uh, you know, a few degrees of uh, freedom, but in MMA, I, for, I like I, I know um, you know Valentina Shevchenko. The way that she trains is like completely different um, to you know how they train at ATT, for example. But she's an elite fighter competing mm. at the very top, and and the the, the, the differences in the, in the approach in terms of the number of ways to skin a cat is like is so vast in MMA. Uh, that, that's what I'm learning and finding. That's what I've found um, over this time with talking with different coaches is that that in terms of outcomes, the route to get to outcomes can be so varied in MMA. Um, having said that, uh, like the guys at City Kickboxing are doing incredible work. I like their approach and having a holistic approach. The guys that are trying to think of the sport in terms of integrating, um, you know, effectively mind, body, spirit with mindfulness, with physical preparation and then technical preparation and thinking about it as holistically as possible, integrating recovery and so on. You need to have that approach. It can't just be the toughest guy get in there and, um, and hopefully they, they, they sort of win. Um, the, the guys at ATT are doing a great job. Um, they've got great, you know, good, good setup, Mike Brown um, and Kona Silvera, that those guys are, I definitely look up to. Uh, and then AKA I say would be um, another one in terms of bringing, bringing stuff in house uh, and having thing, everything there in terms of coaches and, and support staff as well. They'd probably be the, the, the standout guy, For, sorry, Faraz Zahabi as well. I know he's very cerebral and, and thinks about it holistically as well. I've seen some interviews with him and had a couple of conversations as well that I feel um, they're doing some really good stuff, but all very, surprisingly different yeah and it's an interesting question to ask because i i'm the same i look at coaches and i think they're all so different and they all bring different things together and then you start listening to people like andy galpin who's spoken about like kind of fighter archetypes whether to be more of a fighter an athlete or a martial artist which are the predominantly um you know israel halpern then another guy who was at the ais with us a couple of years ago doing his phd who's been on the podcast before Israel would often get asked, you know, Israel's had some kickboxing experience as well. And Israel would often get asked, what's the best strength and conditioning program? And Israel would, would answer back, well, what kind of fighter do you want to be? Yeah. And the person would be like, what? And it was really interesting because it made me think about a lot as well about, you know, do you want to be like a Nate Diaz with a good gas tank and you want to go, you don't want to knock him out, but you want to pepper him with shots and just wear him down? Or do you want to be, you know, probably like, um, and he got better. He got better at this in throughout his career. But maybe like a Tyron Woodley, who just comes out big muscle mass guy and just wants to drag you to the ground and or you know swing and knock you out or a, or um, what was his name as well? He was in the UFC, Johnny Hendricks, uh, that sort of guy. Just want to use power. So it all depends, like what the fighter archetype you are, the type of fighter you want to be. Then within that as well, you know, it's all it's it's so like you say, it's so multidimensional and it's nearly like you would have to do some sort of uh, assessment at the start to work out. And I think that's what the good coaches do is to kind of pick out this, this athlete. Like I think like uh, Farah Sahabi was very good at extracting the best out of someone like GSP. He knew that GSP was probably more like a martial arts artist first than an athlete and then a fighter last probably in, in that order. 
But then Verasp was very good at bringing in other people like John Danaher to focus on the grappling and, and other people and, and was confident in his own ability, I think, to, as a coach, not to be feel threatened by other people. So these people that bring in um, other people and, and work on the fighter holistically, I think they're the people who, who probably bring the best out in the athletes, which is such an important um, process, I think. Yeah, it, it's interesting you bring that out because that's like the um, uh, foundation of um, like my my coaching philosophy. Really, is that is separating it into um, the fighter martial artist and I'm um, oh, sorry, have you, I just clicked on something and it went. Uh, I'm still there. Don't be looking at pornography while you're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is a family podcasting. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, that, in fact, I, I, could, I could share something with you quickly. Um, if you don't mind. Yeah. I'll just um, play some elevator music while we're waiting to uh, open your document. Yeah. Your call is important <laughs> to us. Please hold while Dean pulls up this document. Did you uh, know that Sleep for Performance website has lots of free podcasts, blogs, and other information? We'll also be running a seminar this 21st of June, which is free to register. All talks will be available after the seminar as well, free of charge. <laughs> That's not a joke, by the way, guys. We have a pot, we do have a seminar on the 21st of June. Free, four sessions across the 16th. Oh, yeah, read, read some of that to the staff, actually. I think a yeah. few of the staff are, um, are going to be doing that. Um, yeah, everybody's welcome. Free to, free to, free to attend. Being one-hour sessions, four 10-minute talks in each session, five minutes Q&A. In sessions one, three, and four, session two, we'll have two guest speakers, one on chrononutrition, which is the timing of nutrition for shift workers, and the other one would be on the importance of light and managing light. Oh, nice. Uh, hold on, no, I've got it. Oh, wait, how do I share my screen? Can I share it? Oh, yeah, share it. Uh, I think I might have to give you permission. There you go. You share permission now. There we go. So if you're watching the YouTube version of this, you can look at these slides. Yeah, so, okay, so you talked about that, yeah, the fighter, martial artist and athlete, and then um, trying to get, if, if you're looking from right to left, objective to subjective. So on the athlete side, you can have objective measures of work capacity with, um, you know, VO2 max, uh, their energy system diagnostics on it, like with an MGP or M MAP, their strength, power and speed on the force velocity curve, and then some other tests. And we include them in the combine that we do for the MMA combine. And then on the martial artist side, I have a, a number of different technical tests um, that have been developed over the time that we've been here in, here in Shanghai. Uh, so that's kind of a technical knowledge and, and effectively theoretical understanding. And then the fight and, and trying to bring some objective measure to the subjective of a coach, coach's eye of how you assess their technical ability. Um, and then on the fighter side, obviously it's way more uh, subjective because to have a measure of, of those attributes is, is difficult and is generally demonstrated in how they respond to hard training, how they respond to sparring and how they perform um, in fighting. And then hopefully with some, you know, mental skills training um, and, 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 and uh, support on that side, you can develop the, these attributes. So if, if you then um, have an assessment of those attributes that I, that I mentioned in there, then it will give you a picture of what the 
um, where the athlete's strengths and weaknesses lie. And then when you're putting together a training program, you may want to develop different areas, whether they need extra uh, mental skill support, whether they, they're physically not where they need to. Oh, sorry, that's I shouldn't show that athlete. Um, and then, yeah, so that, <laughs> no, that's not, yeah. So I'll, I'll stop sharing, but yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, um, uh, th- that's kind of underpins the idea of, of um, Duncan French, our VP of performance says, if you're not assessing, you're guessing. Um, mm. So we're trying to individualize all our uh, training programs and that that philosophy around where they fit in that, not necessarily ranking the one, two and three, it's just like every fighter or every MMA athlete is all three of those things. And it's how much of those three things it, depending on what you may want to focus on and at different state phases of camp you may off camp you may not be working on the mental skill side so much and maybe the priority for it as you get closer to fight camp and so on and so forth so um yeah it's very very much under underpins my um coaching philosophy and and and, and looking at developing those different attributes of of a well-rounded um, mma athlete yeah, it's very interesting. So with that in mind, ending, obviously, you know, you've seen a vast jump in sort of the scientific thinking or the, um, you know, the, the focused or rigorous approach to developing MMA athletes over the last 20 years. And you would have seen that come leaps and bounds. But like with everything, there's always there's always areas to improve in or to move forward. What do you think is the next frontier in MMA, whether it be on the S&C side, the recovery side, the fighter side, the like what elements of the kind of human performance aspect of MMA do you think is the next frontier that needs to be tackled? Um, there's a few things. Uh, I think in terms of tra- training load monitoring, at the moment we use SRPE um, and uh, in, that's, you know, a subjective measure and it's, and it's useful, uh, but we're constantly having like internal discussions about, for, for example, uh, when we're looking at training load and it's training intensity multiplied by the time of, of a training session, we may have a, a, um, a, a drilling session with limited live live rounds, but some, some live rounds wrestling and then technical b- beforehand. And maybe it's a two hour session. Okay. And they, and they, um, and they rate it a four, but it's a two hour session. So that's four times 120 minutes, but then their sparring session is maybe just over an hour because they're doing five fives with warm up and and so on, but that's yeah. rated at a, at a six or maybe even a seven if it's a high intensity sparring session. But the training load for those two sessions is is less in the sparring uh, than it is for that for that two hour session. Um, so when you're in terms of the like the daily undulation of of periodization and thinking of considering that, it, it is that and, and maybe it is. And the people that develop SRP would argue that that is accounting for. Uh, the the training load but i potentially from my experience would make the argument that there's there's additional um training load from the impact that you get from the 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 associated recovery that's needed for the impact and then the 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 neurological stress that comes from sparring and the nerves that came before it the night before the 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 experience of of being in it and the intensity that's in there when you're actually having hard sparring fight day sparring it's, it's it's high level and is that being accounted for in um in training load so that that's a conversation that we're having you know it's ongoing actually and how we could is there a, is there a coefficient that we could add to um uh, sparring that accounts for it or some, some something like that. That, that that would be an area um and then you know obviously gps in other sports like rugby i'm familiar with when i've worked in rugby and that's like a really useful tool for training load but you can't use it in mma because of yes if it's a pure stand-up fight potentially the movement and whatnot could be useful, mm. but 
you could have a, you could have one round where they stay standing. You could have another round. He takes him down. He keeps him in guard. And they haven't moved at all. And it is that. And then there's no uh, consideration for the isometric nature of grappling and the impact that that has on on training load. So that we're working where there's a company we're working with currently um, with uh, like these glove sensors that look at punching output and we and developing a for technology for shin guards as well that we look at how many kicks are thrown and get objective measures of out like, like striking output but then that still doesn't look at um the the impact on grappling um we have we have uh we're, we're working with a company that is a mouth guard sensor that measures impact um and we did a trial with them and then we going looking at uh, advancing that on as well and then potentially is there is there like an impact load of of or can we use that as a training training load measure as well so there's there's definitely advancement in that type of technology and integrating something like huddle like camera technology yeah yeah that that hasn't been done in mma yet that that would be we're looking at doing stuff like that or or, or um using some ai that that can measure uh, the output as well because it you know i don't know if you've seen in the pfl they have like cameras that tell strike force a number of number of strikes and so it'll strike speed i think it might be so there's the the areas of advancement would be around that type of stuff that i think that co coaches could be find really useful and they're in their infancy and fortunately we're in a position to be doing some of the research around that and there's some cool stuff that's coming out of it but i'd say that yeah that that would be the area i think that, that there's the most room for for growth yeah, it's interesting to talk about coefficients or covariates. So from a scientific point of view, this is one thing that I discussed with Reid. Uh, myself and Reid ran a study at the Australian Institute of Sport looking at weight cutting in, in athletes. And, and we wrote, Reid wrote his paper on lo looking at the raw residue diet and the, and the water loading um, project. Um, so I had, we had two groups and we had them sort of control and sleeping environment and, you know, control the diet and the whole lot. And we had a number of people on that study. Um, and... What was interesting on that as well as I wrote a paper on looking at the sleep around the water loading as well. And it would be, it was kind of hypothesized that the ones doing water loading would have more nocturia or basically that's a fancy way for saying to wake up pissing throughout the night, you know, um, which it didn't. And so, but, but the other thing as well is in that thing as well, like what you said is that was like a fighter house really for 10 days with those guys, but they were all mates. No one was fighting at the end of it. There was no yeah. camera stuck in someone's face or no one recording a podcast or a microphone or you weren't kind of getting ready till the end of the week for someone to, you know, try and choke you out. So we lacked all that sort of hype around the fight week, um, which is something you can't replicate in group conditions. The only way we can do that, I think, is by just basically recruiting individual athletes um, and using that as an aggregate data to see what's happening in terms of sleep and the, and the wake up and so on. But again, like you said, Dean, that's going to depend on a whole host of factors. And I spoke to Jordan Sullivan about this because yeah. some fighters want to have their room like a party playing video games and staying up. And that's how they feel like they can, they can combat the nerves. Other guys want to live like a, like a samurai. Um, yeah. Other guys, it's their first fight. And so that's going to be very different versus their 10th fight. Other guys are like, you know what, this is my last fight. So how do you account for all of those different things? And um, how do you incorporate people's individual chronotype and sleep habits before the week of the fight and then after? Um, so there's lots of different uh, coefficients that we just can't account for in scientific data or group data or in training centers like the PI. And we're still kind of, I think, trying to shape around the edges and, and constantly using a reductionist method to find out what we can do. But still in all, it probably just leads to more questions than answers, which is obviously the goal of science. But um, it becomes quite difficult to come up with the with the one pathway forward. And lots of people want to be like, what's the, how many times should I do grappling? How many times should I do striking? What's my SNC program? What should I eat and what should I not do? Well, 
And it's really hard to do that. Uh, Israel kind of answered, it's like, well, it depends what type of fighter you want to be. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, and then one of the challenges I have um, here when I'm programming is I've had to like, so, so one of the benefits about being here is that everything's under one roof, okay? So previously, even at some of the other gyms, like you guys are going here to train for one thing and going to another place to train for another. Um, whereas we have everything under one roof, but we only, we only have a certain amount of coaches. So I've got to, I've got to plan and, and be tactical with, with um, how we have our timetable so that the athletes are getting, getting the, the individual attention that they need. And how I do that is I have like a core timetable that covers the, um, like I mentioned, the 11 technical skill categories of, of MMA. And, and we work in three-week cycles. So I make sure that across all, a three-week cycle, all in, in this core timetable, um, all 11 technical skill categories are covered across the three weeks and at least eight are covered in one week, but they're all interconnected uh, across the three-week cycle. And then outside of that core timetable within the week, there are individual sessions that happen. And we based on that assessment that I talked about, particularly on the technical skill um, area, the athletes are bucketed into takedown defense yeah. or whatever they, the things that they need to be working on. And then also by phase of camp. So in fight camp, we have a strength focus. In off camp, we have a weakness focus. So off that skill set, in off camp, they'll be in those individual skill areas, they're working on uh, plugging the holes and working on the deficits. And then, in, and then in fight camp, it's more like positive focus, working on what they need to be doing and working on their strengths. If there's an individual fighter that they're working on that we know game plan wise that we need to be working on, of course, we'll, we'll do that too. But for the most part, it's like positive um uh, focus and working on what they need to be doing so that that takes it because we've got like 30 athletes that are in the building and training and and only you know a certain amount of coaches that that, that that level of planning needs to go into it to individualize so that one athlete may be doing wrestling eight you know four, eight, four times a week and one might be doing only one once a week they, they mean that that sort of um multiple different timetables going on at the same time. It's, 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 it's challenging logistically. <laughs> Dean, are you sure you're not a school principal? Because it sounds like you're putting in the fundamental classes everybody has to attend and then the electives. You're like a principal. That's basically what it is. That's exactly, <laughs> that's, that, that is exactly the idea, basically. That's, that's, that, that is, that's how we have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Could the following fighters please come to the principal's office? <laughs> they get their timetable every Sunday and they know where they're going in the week. <laughs> <laughs> Little school bag on their back, MMA gloves. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you one thing: if people in our in our school had MMA gloves on, the teachers might watch what they say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I did see a few fist fights between students and teachers when I was younger. Those days are gone. Dean, my last question for you is, which I'd be I'd be slapped on the wrist if I didn't ask you this question. What do you think is this is the focus uh, currently or the future of sleep and recovery in MMA athletes or around the UFC? Yeah. Um... It, 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 like I mentioned on the um, previously about how the sport is still developing and the understanding of um, sports performance and its integration into MMA is is yeah still developing. So you know I I, I would always put together some sort of um, sleep protocol and um, a jet lag protocol for my guys that are traveling internationally um, because I, for a lot of fighters they they didn't even they wouldn't even consider mm. the impact. That and just turn on they're not doing anything beforehand and when they get they're not they're not really doing anything and no supplements or anything like that um and it yeah they're not realizing the impact that jet lag can have and for a lot of fighters 
jet lag is a, is a serious thing. And then outside of jet lag, because the UFC is international and people are traveling, just day to day and the impact that, um, from my perspective, not only sleep, the, the impact it has on uh, recovery, which is obvious, but also on learning. So if you like the, the, the brain's ability to learn and when it, in states of fatigue is dramatically impacted. So there's, there's, there's both sides, mind and body, uh, they're, they're super important. And like we, we, we have an awareness and we, you know, the new academy athletes, when they join, they get a sleep pack and they get to choose a pillow. Uh, they get blue blue screen lights. We, they're given a, uh, a one pager with um, sleep hygiene, and we we have considerations for it that, that we know that it's that it's important. Um, but like with everything, um, it could it could be done it could be done better. But there are so many things to, uh, to be doing. Um, but I think there's it's just just with a, like a number of things, like even nutrition, uh, which is related to weight cutting. There's still education that's needed for that. Um, so. It, the, the science supports that sleep's important and it's just a, it's just a matter of time until people like yourself and and the understanding is is put out there through um education and then more more athletes will understand it but i, th I think it's at the moment uh under um valued at the moment yeah so. No, I, I agree. And so this is probably a nice segue into the end of the podcast, which is a bit of a plug as well for a study that we're running. So on the combat sports science web web page, which is uh which is run by myself. Um, it's a new platform up to start doing some studies in this, which is which is self-funded through uh, Sleep for Performance and um, funded then by the time of Reed Real and Andy Galpin. So the three of us have come together to start a diagnostic or a survey, which is basically looking at sleep and nutrition practices of athletes because we all believe and, and we know that it's completely undervalued by, uh, by a number of athletes. And all those factors you said, Dean, is sort of sleep in training camps, um, you know, sleep when traveling, the jet lag effect. And that's where we work with McLaren and the Formula One team to do that stuff. The other component as well, which so many athletes aren't aware about is even like the prevalence of sleep disorders and problems, which are clinical disorders where so many people are like, what? well, you know, I'm not, you know, a general population person. And there's about 70 sleep disorders, seven zero, and it's, there's loads of them out there. And we're actually finding there's a higher prevalence of the sleep disorders amongst athletes compared to the general population so far, very limited studies on it. The biggest study was run by myself with 25 super rugby players. And we found that the prevalence rate there was over 30%, whereas 20% of the population. Now, we don't actually know why that is the case at the moment, but there's other disorders out there like periodic like movement disorder, which is linked to low iron and low magnesium. There's other ones out there um, such as insomnia, which you, you would probably expect with people having trouble sleeping after training. And then obviously then talking to amateur or semi-pro athletes who have to work like you were saying, or even pro athletes, the, the balance of the training and the scheduling to optimize for their own chronobiology, but then also the ability to work. Because what I'm seeing as well, talking to people are getting questions is, you know, some guys are finishing work at four or five o'clock down in like some sort of pre-workout drink, going to the gym, training them right. from six o'clock to nine o'clock. They're trying to do jujitsu striking, like you're doing everything to get home then around half nine, have a shower, eat some food at 10 o'clock. Then they're stressing out because they can't go to sleep. And we know from the research that it can take two to three hours to fall asleep, to fall, to fall asleep at midnight. And then they're trying to get up at six o'clock in the morning to get their road work in. It's like, you're just completely like completely fucking yourself for want of a better word over a six week camp. And you're just grinding your body down where, you know, you need to have a bit of better strategic programming or optimization for, because this kind of thing of MMA and, and martial arts of two or three, it is may not be apt for a semi-pro or even a pro, depending on what else is going on. Maybe it's just a one big block, a monophase um, 
strength and conditioning phase program where you incorporate strength and conditioning maybe as part of the warm up phase before you do something. And so those type of things, I think, need attention as well to allow people to sleep and recovery. Shachenko trains. She does one big session a day. Um, But um, yeah, look, you're absolutely right. And my my introduction to understanding more about sleep actually came from when I was coaching in the UK and I had to have my pro sparring sessions, the one in the week. We did one on the weekend, but the one in the week we had to be at like seven o'clock. Uh, because some, some of my guys, even though they're a pro, were working in the day. And so, and I'd sometimes spar with them as well at that time. Finish sparring at nine o'clock and your full like sympathetic nervous system, just like, yeah. you know, after, yeah. after sparring and you don't get, <laughs> and you're knackered, yeah. you don't get, can't, can't get to sleep. And I'm like, what's going on here? I can't get to sleep till like midnight. Yeah. And then and then I've realized the power of, of, of breathing techniques and uh, being able to control arousal and bringing yourself back to the parasympathetic. And, and we, we use breathing techniques here. And I know that's an, you know, and things like progressive, something I worked really well for me was progressive muscle re- relaxation. Yeah. Uh, and that really helped on those evenings after training and like getting, getting, getting yourself back. But most, most, you know, athletes don't have an, have an understanding of the impact that the training has post-training on, on your ability to see. Plus if they, yeah, they did work a full day and they've had a energy drink before sparring to get up for sparring is, you know, yeah, the, it's, it's, uh, a, it's certainly a challenge, but even for our guys, we, we, we work with breathing techniques for, for that reason to control yeah where they are in terms of that spectrum of parasympathetic sympathetic yeah yeah it's 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 uh it's such an interesting factor and so the scheduling is sometimes when i talk to athletes or work one-on-one to kind of get a bit pissed off at or like well you ask me all these questions about what i do during the day and when i train i'm here to talk about sleep but it's actually the scheduling so the chronobiology aspect across the day and the scheduling of stuff is actually more important than the sleep part so yeah. focusing more on on how you do that is interesting so yeah, I think there's there's still there's still lots to do in that area, and um, that's why we've launched this study. So that study is is free for anybody to go in and do it. Uh, whether, whether you're amateur, pro, hobbyist, traditional martial artist, whatever, it doesn't matter. Everybody's welcome to do that. The link is on a, on the website, which I'll put in the show notes for this episode. And when you finish to re, um, doing the diagnostic, you'll get a free report uh, emailed to you straight away, which gives you those areas to improve on. And um, so it gives you kind of a self assessment. So there is there is something in it for you. The other thing as well, Dean, is in the next uh, two to three weeks, I'm going to be launching just um, a complimentary or free talk on sleep and recovery and its importance in uh, martial arts. So that'll be available on YouTube. I'm hoping to get that out by the end of the month. And in conjunction with that, we're launching a combat sports athlete optimization program as well, which will be um, basically assessing athletes, uh, combat sport athletes sleep. This can all be done remotely. We get them to connect to a, a third party system. We can look at your sleep. We can do some assessments of the prevalence of sleep disorders, and then we can meet as well via Zoom to basically go through travel and jet lag plans or scheduling stuff. And it's not meant to be an ongoing relationship where, you, you know, every week where we keep meeting you um, like a coach, but it's probably supposed to be done like once at maybe the start of camp or for a fight or maybe once a year for a, for a deep dive assessment. So it's kind of just a one-off thing that you would do. Um, it's not designed to be a, a weekly kind of catch-up. So we're launching that as well at the end of the month because we think that... Um, you know, a lot of fighters across a number of different sports would like that, or even just recreational hobbyists who like to compete might like that sort of support and service as well. And we're trying to do as much as we can to um, gather data. And then so we can provide back good education, like you said, because I think education is is, is vital in this area um, to inform and, and help not only the athletes, but also the coaches as well, so they can make the right decisions. So, you know, yeah, people, like, people like us are, are very focused on that, you included. It's, yeah, it's tough, though, because if, 
what well, sometimes I bang my head against the wall because it's like, you know, is it a weight category sport and some fighters don't understand the importance of nutrition. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> how are you not putting those two things yeah, together? Yeah. And then sleep and recovery, you know, making those, making those connections as well. It's just, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one with it that it's not, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be common sense when you think that it would be. Yeah, because we get some massive on the industry side, like in mining, where we do a lot of our work, and we also do research in that area as well. We get some people losing 20 to 30 kilos, kilometers, 20 to 30 kilos in a year, because basically we you know, assess their sleep, we look at the prevalence of a sleep disorder, and then we work out what's happening. We start treating either the behavior or the sleep disorder, or we give them some advice, um, a little bit of advice on nutrition, or put them in contact with a dietitian. And some guys, within, like I had one guy within a, a year, 30 kilos gone off him. He, I couldn't believe what I saw him. He looked like a complete different person. Yeah, and wow. that was just pure body fat. And he was going to the gym. And he was like, actually wasn't that hard. But once I got my sleep sorted out, because yeah. there's a whole thing with appetite regulating hormones with leptin and ghrelin, you know, mm-hmm. and people who do shift work, these things get completely, um, you know, fucked up really or <laughs> dysregulated. And same with fighters as well. If you're training really late at night and getting up in the morning, you're getting into that you're nearly going to be, you're nearly akin to a shift worker because you're sleeping at odd times. So you're going to completely get in your whole circadian biology, chronobiology completely screwed up. So um, it tends to be only athletes from 30 onwards tend to come to see me because they, they start feeling the, 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 the deleterious effects of overtraining to stop maybe drinking alcohol, to start focusing on stretching, nutrition, mobility. So it's generally athletes over 30 who come to see me. But I, I always say to young people, especially at our gym, when they come up and ask me questions, I'm like, the earlier you can focus on these things, the better it is because you can build in those habits now if you really want to be a good jujitsu player or whatever it might be. Um, and it's going to help you in your long-term health as well, even if you don't want to fight. You know, these are good habits that you will build in or habits even I try to build in as a recreational amateur guy as well. I want to build in these things about, you know, minimizing alcohol, focusing on my diet, particularly over 40, a bit more strength and conditioning, increasing my protein. You know, I struggle with all the same things that, athletes struggle with as, as to get older increase in body fat you know <laughs> all of these things not being as fast um so you got to just kind of put a plan in place to that phase of where you are so yeah it's we, quite quite interesting that partnership with um aura ring and i know they're not like the, the most accurate of 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 things like you know fully fully accurate but they're, they're pretty good but one of the things that uh, i did notice from that is that when, when you do drink the impact it has to your sleep is incredible yeah it, like, and you get even even if it isn't like you know sleep study level um uh accuracy um what what it did do for me is um you know i wanted to have good sleep scores and then you notice that your sleep hygiene gets better and you're doing things to make sure you get good sleep scores and when you see how much you, when you have, do have a night of a lot, bit heavier drinking and the impact it has to it, you're like oh man that's that's not good <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, yeah it's good to have a visualization of it you know yeah, and I think there's a good point there, Dean, as well, is that when you have these wearable devices, they're not clinically graded, you know, um, technologies and they're not perfect. Definitely not for the sleep stages or wildly inaccurate for sleep stages. But if you're looking at like time, you go to bed, sleep duration and so on. If you look at those on a 21 day window, that's what you want to be looking at is moving averages. This kind of like waking up in the morning and going, oh, I got five hours and start freaking out. That's not the way to approach those things. It's look at the average data over time and what's your long-term sleep habits. And once you build up some data, we can identify trends like every Friday night, like you're saying, you get on the piss and then you're, you know, it takes like three days to recover that sleep. That Then we start going, look, Friday nights, let's just curtail it a bit. Instead of going out from 9 p.m. till four in the morning, can we try and get home by one or two at least? And we yeah, start yeah, kind yeah. of raining things in a little bit. So that's where we can use those devices or you can see 
how early morning sessions might be impacting because you start looking at the data and you go, right, you got up at half five, you did some road work, but then you start talking to your coach for striking or jujitsu. And he's like, you know, on that, on, on those days where he gets up at half five in the morning, he's absolutely ratchet at seven o'clock when we're doing jujitsu that night. So maybe on days when you're doing jujitsu late at night or striking, maybe you don't train early in the morning and you go more the Shevchenko style of one big, uh, you know, one block training. So, yeah. Lots to unpack, man. I think we could sit here all day talking about this area. Yeah, it's, mate. It's, thank, thanks very much. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's a good, yeah. good chat. Thanks for having me on, man. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, sleep well. Yeah.